The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Today's guest is George Lawson. He is a professor of international relations at the Australian National University and the author of Anatomies of Revolution. For those who follow the podcast, this is the second part of a three-episode arc called Resistance, Revolution, Democracy. Last week, Erica Chenoweth explained the concept of civil resistance and how nonviolent campaigns are more effective than armed resistance to overthrow authoritarian regimes. Today's conversation broadens the topic to include all forms of revolution. We discuss many examples from history and current events. We talk about the American and French revolutions, but also more modern examples like Belarus and Tunisia. But the key insight that I take from this conversation is how successful revolutions face a second challenge in how they choose to govern. And contemporary revolutions are particularly vulnerable to this challenge because they represent exceptionally broad coalitions with diverse opinions. So please forgive me as I describe this as my Empire Strikes Back episode. It is exciting, entertaining, and epic. But as George Lawson writes in his book, revolutions are often major disappointments. Rarely do they offer a fairy tale ending. So next week, Jonathan Pinckney will offer an answer to this challenge. In that episode, we will discuss the characteristics and choices which do bring about true democratization. But until then, this is my conversation about revolutions with scholar George Lawson. George, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Uh, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on revolutions. Nice How are you doing? I'm looking yeah. forward. I'm doing great, thank you. Looking forward to it. Well, let's dive into your work. Um, so I always like to begin with a definition, and I think it's important to understand what's meant by revolutions because we throw around the term so loosely. You talk about that a little bit in your book. Can you help us understand how you define revolutions? Sure. I mean, I do most aspects of my definition uh, fairly conventionally, but there's one that's a little bit quirky. So like other people, I think about them as collective mobilizations. Um, I prefer that to mass because actually revolutions are, are always minority persuasions. Um, we can talk a little bit about how many people you need in comparison to other forms of, of popular uprising and social movements to qualify as a revolution, but you clearly need more than a, more than a couple, right? Um, so there's some dimension of collective mobilization. 
And I also think about it as a forceful um, transfer of power or attempt to take over political power. And again, I think that matters because you can have sometimes very dramatic changes, but they take place within a particular constitutional structure. So if you think about China over the last 30 or 40 years, you'd be hard pressed to think of a more radical set of transformations to a particular country in a relatively compressed period of time, but it's been done by the state within state structures. So there's some dimension of extra constitutionality, some dimension of transgressive, forceful change from below. I think speed matters, so I, I tend to say quickly, and again, there's a slightly eye of the beholder. I mean, in China, it took you know, three decades between 1911 and 1949 before the communists took, took power. Uh, if you go back to the revolutions in East Central Europe in 1989, it took more like three weeks. Um, so you can have a fairly wide discrepancy, but I think you need that sense of sort of accelerated time. There's that sort of shorthand of revolution that I like to think about, that something's kind of impossible in the morning, it's possible by lunchtime, it's probable by the afternoon, and it's inevitable by the evening, right? There's some sort of acceleration of time, some notion of speed. Does a revolution have to be successful to be a revolution? Oh, I mean, this is the quirky bit, right? So if that bit about collective, quick, uh, compulsion, forcefulness is pretty standard, I think the thing that I... Uh, differ from with other people is I talk about attempts to do all of these things. So attempts to transform a particular political structure, attempts to transform a particular way of, of going around your everyday business and the sort of symbolic uh, ecologies people work within, you know, their belief systems, the languages, the public holidays, that kind of stuff. All of that stuff is, is important to revolutions. But I think we have far more revolutionary movements than successful revolutions. And the problem we have is if we only concentrate on successful revolutions is we're already kind of biasing the field, right? We're already looking at a handful of cases that kind of self-reproduce. We're not looking at all of those revolutionary movements that fail. So the obvious example here is if you go back to the Arab uprisings in 2011. Syria failed, uh, Tunisia succeeded. But was Syria less revolutionary than Tunisia? I don't think so, right? If you think about the amount of people that were out in the streets, you think about the way that they mobilized, what they were trying to do, they were just as revolutionary as Tunisia, but one succeeded, one didn't. I think it would be a shame if we don't look at Syria and we just concentrate on Tunisia. So I have that dimension of attempts. You've got to be trying to do all of these things, but I'm not so concerned about whether you succeed or not in terms of at least analyzing your revolutionary quotient. Now, I have a historical question for you in terms of that, in terms of how we think about it. Hannah Arendt, for instance, when she talks about revolution, she thinks of it as a very modern concept, which is pretty traditional in the literature to say revolutions are more of something that's part of the modern age. And there's almost a sense of a normative concept that, hey, you're fighting for some sense of freedom or justice. Um, how do you differentiate between, between like a revolution or the rebellions that have existed since probably since the beginning of time, you have lots of rebellions in the Middle Ages that don't go anywhere. Um, Braveheart's a famous movie where you've got a rebellion that, you know, eventually does succeed. Is yeah. that a revolution or is that something else? That's a great question and it's impossible to answer. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I, I think we used to think about revolutions as something that really stood alone. It was a kind of capital R revolution, right? France, Russia, China, Iran, Cuba, maybe 10 or 11 
over the last two or 300 years. And that was a revolution. And everything else was something else, right? It was a rebellion, it was a revolt. Uh, it's even more complicated than that because you get sometimes very radical coups. So uh, Pinochet took power in Chile in 1973 and instigated enormously powerful changes to Chilean society over the next 15 years, but he did so with a coup from above. Uh, and again, you have those examples of like China or like the Gulf monarchies over the last 40 or 50 years, where you've had huge changes to societies, but top down directed by the state. So we have lots of stuff that's big change and lots of stuff that's very close to being a revolution. And so what I think do is I think about revolutions as part of a family of unruly politics, and the relationship between them often changes over time. So I think about revolution more, I sort of relax the idea of what revolutions are in the first place. So first of all, we're thinking about attempts, not just success. And then we're thinking about smaller revolutionary stuff. Um, so I don't have a problem with those revolutions like we're seeing in Belarus at the moment, or like we've seen over the last 20, 30 years that are primarily oriented around a state and a, and a form of governance or a bad dictator or a bad autocrat or a corrupt regime or family. Even if they don't have radically new ideas about how they're going to organize an economy or they don't massively want to shift you know, society in a, in a new revolutionary direction, there's still something dramatic going on that fulfills my basic criteria. It's quick. It's collective, it's from below, it's trying to do all of this stuff, successful or otherwise. I think that's revolutionary stuff. So the first thing to do is stop thinking about revolutions as requiring a kind of really hard container around them where we just point at them and go, that's a revolution because it does X, Y, and Z. That's not because it doesn't. I think we need to think about revolutions part of a family. I think it makes it a bit fuzzier. Um, I think we have kind of dotted lines around them and dotted lines towards these other forms of, of change, including rebellion, including revolt, including a coup. But I think the, the benefit of doing that is we just have much more, A, we've got much more cases to look at, and B, we're going to be much more closely linked to what's actually happening in the world. So I'm a bit more, I'm, I lose a little bit of precision there, but, but what you gain there, I think, is, is a lot more stuff that you can analyze and a lot, and a lot closer connection between theorizing about revolutions and the actual stuff of revolutions themselves. Also gets away from a little bit of the ideal and gets back to reality because yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, look, those are those revolutions that we kind of think about as, as archetypes or quintessential, they weren't as, you know, capital R revolutionary as we think they are. I mean, I've always thought it was pretty odd to start the social science of revolutions or the modern history of revolutions with France, given that that was, you know, uh, uh, sort of taken on a particular imperial route by Napoleon and then partly overturned by the restoration of the Bourbons in 1815. So it's a pretty odd case mm -hmm. to base your whole social science. If you think about revolutions as, as fundamentally about major transformations, then that's a pretty odd case to look at. Do you, listen to, Mike, do you listen to Mike Duncan's podcast, Revolutions Ever? No. <laughs> Is that my missed out? Really? Okay. It's uh, he's yeah. the guy who did the entire history of Rome as a podcast. Oh no, I, I I've checked out episodes. I haven't heard the whole thing, and I put okay. it on my. He 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 starts yeah. with the English Civil War, which uh, um, again is what Sherry Berman does in her book Dictatorship and Democracy in Europe too. So um, I think that's the that's I do too. I think there's a kind of revolutionary fifty years in in England from the eighteen sorry from the sixteen forties to the sixteen eighties and. I think that is the kind of birth of, of modern notions of revolution. But, you know, the glorious revolution of mm -hmm. 
it is at least partly a restoration. So you're clearly yep. in that place where revolution is partly that kind of early modern idea of circulation and partly about rupture. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting to start there because you're still getting the two terms rubbing up against each other. There's more of a break in the second half of the 18th century and, and France, Haiti, America, you know, the Atlantic Age of Revolutions is, is the more standard place to start. And I get that, but I think we, we, we miss some, some important roots here if we don't go back a little bit further. So, okay. So democracy obviously allows for peaceful transfers of power without conflict. Yeah. But can an election be revolutionary, especially when it represents a complete change of regime? Like in Venezuela, some maybe even... Bolivia with when Morales first came to power, things right. like that. I don't think so um, mm -hmm. because you don't have that transgressive dimension. So I think you've got to have something extra constitutional, something transgressive. There's lots of big changes that happen to particular societies and particular uh, forms of international order, but they're not all revolutionary. And so here I'm actually a little bit tighter than some others in that you can have radical processes of democratization or you can have radical elections. I mean, if you think about the end of World War II in England, you had a very radical socialist government that came in and did all sorts of stuff. But I don't think that was a revolution because it happened through the ballot box. Mm -hmm. I actually don't think you get revolutions in democracies because they're kind of hardwired to actually stop a revolution taking place. You have all of these checks and balances in the system. You have all these forms of sort of institutional ways that you can actually do something about people's grievances before they get to revolution. They're, they're, they're deliberately intended to be forms of decompression. Now, so it doesn't mean you kind of radical elections. That's a bit mm -hmm. different than people going out on the, in the streets, occupying places, risking their lives, doing something illegal and forcing through a, through a type of compulsion, whether it's armed or unarmed, I'm, I'm not that bothered about, but that sense of forceful compulsion of a social order that doesn't want to be opened up and doesn't want to change. There's something, there's something different going on there, I think. What about the civil rights movement in the United States where they didn't have the right to vote? They didn't have a lot of rights in the South, yet the United States had democratic elements. Or is that kind of a special case that kind of blends between different... Well, you know, everything's a special case, right? But that doesn't mean... Of course. Um, I think the difference there, I, I take your point about uh, mm -hmm. the compulsion and about the sort of extra constitutional stuff and, and the riskiness. And here there's a close link between civil disobedience and social movements and revolutions, which I think is probably the most... I think the two most confusing uh, bits of contemporary revolutions is one, it's close associationship with it's close association, sorry, with social movements and civil disobedience. And the other one is it's close relationship with civil war. So, you know, something like when did yep. Syria shift from being a revolution to a civil war? That's a really hard one. Yeah. I think on the, on the, on the civil rights front, the fact that it's, it's dramatic, but it's based around a single issue rather than trying to shift the entirety of a society makes it different. It makes it more about uh, a social movement. It makes it more about uh, a sort of rights issue. I think a lot of tactics are similar. I think a lot of the strategies are similar. And if a movement like Black Lives Matter, for example, links 
to broader issues around climate change. So it's not just about race, but it also is about capitalism as a system isn't working. We need something different. Uh, the environment needs a rad requires a radical reshaping of a particular social order. Then you're getting closer to revolutionary stuff. But remember what a revolutionary movement is about. It's not just about shifting one sphere, however important of your life, whether it's women's rights, or whether it's the rights of a particular uh, racial group. It's about saying society itself needs to be reordered. The fundamental way that this society operates is exploitative, it's corrupt, it's unjust. And unless we actually structurally reshape it, we can't do anything about it. And that's, a, that's, that's something, there's something there that's a bit more systemic than saying uh, the society is racist, the society is sexist. So you have to put that together. And it might be that in the contemporary world, we are seeing the kernels of movements that actually are, you know, intersectionally bringing these movements together. But I don't think the civil rights movement is quite there. I think however powerful it was, however dramatic its changes, I get the extra constitutional point. The fact that it was restricted largely to one issue within a society makes it, makes it just gives it, gives it a little tweak. It makes it more a case of civil disobedience and social movements than revolutionary. Now, I found your book really interesting because you help establish a framework for how to think about revolutions. I always love stuff that helps give that sense of theoretical framework behind it before you move on to some of your cases. And, and even your cases help explain those concepts that you use when you kind of walk through your case studies. Can you break down... Um, kind of what you're talking about at a high level, because I'm positive we're going to come back to these concepts of revolutionary situations, right. revolutionary trajectories, and revolutionary outcomes, and, and possibly how they relate a little bit. Sure. Well, thanks. Um, I think, I mean, there's nothing massively innovative about that. I think one, I think the interesting thing in revolutionary studies has been that we often get we, because we concentrate, we start with outcomes, how big a transformation is taking place. We often then go back and we say, there must be a big cause, right? A big outcome has to have a big cause. So where there are major kind of structural antagonisms in class structure and state society relations and international position and so on. And I think a couple of things I do is I go back and say, actually, you know, big outcomes can have small beginnings. Um, sometimes you have to take seriously, you know, someone setting themselves on fire in a market in Tunisia or how things could have been otherwise in general. There's often a snowball effect um, to revolutions that you don't necessarily notice them at the beginning. Sometimes you start with relatively small changes and they get bigger and bigger and magnify and magnify. The second thing I think is I spend more time on the actual events of revolutions than, than a lot of other people. I mean, it's not novel to me, but it, but it, it's something that I, I, I try and emphasize. It just always seemed to me very odd that you could have all of these revolutionary figures that we think about as hugely important, whether it's Robespierre or, you know, Lenin or Rosa Luxemburg or Marx and Engels or Toussaint Louverture, and then somehow they're written out of the theories of revolutions and the stories we often tell about them as if, as if they didn't matter. So I try and put the people back. I try and put some small histories back and try from there to build my theorization of what revolutions are. And I think this is the really tricky part, right? So I accept the idea that revolutions are always singular and you can never completely repeat them. 
which is a trap, by the way, that revolutionaries themselves have often, you know, not got right. And they've often looked at other revolutions and said, well, if it can happen there, it can happen here. What did they do? Let's do the same thing. And of course, it usually doesn't work because the contexts are different and because people learn and what works in one place may not work in another. So I like I, I want to yeah. point out that I really like, in terms of your historical analysis, that the cases that you chose were a little bit unexpected, rather uh-huh. than saying, "Hey, let's talk about France and Russia." Right. You know, well, everyone's done that, right? I'm... <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but it was informative because you you walked through some cases that I was less familiar with and really right. kind of added some context. And some of them I knew a little bit about Chile. I've right. just read about in probably two different books. Like there was a uh, book that just came out rigged that talked about how the United States had been involved in some past elections and how Russia got involved in, in different elections. And they talked about Chile in particular. So mm-hmm. it, it helped bring out some of the points that you did. Um, some of the other cases, it just really added a lot of context and stuff that goes beyond just a revolutionary framework. I thought it helped people understand things in terms of uh historical context and case studies that was really interesting especially how you related it back to the the theory thanks Justin. i mean yeah i mean it's hardwired into into the theoretical approach in that um if you accept that revolutions are effectively unrepeatable then if you're going to try and develop patterns from them i mean you have two choices right one is to say they're just all singular so we just do it case by case but if you're going to accept which i do that there are patterns still that we can generate from revolutionary experiences. They might not be as dramatic as, you know, you require a particular type of geopolitics or you require a particular type of class structure or whatever, but there are patterns in history. Then you've got to take some pretty unlike cases and you've got to spread yourself as wide as possible. So that's what I try and do. I try and spread across region. I try and spread across time. And the idea then is if I can find some patterns within those cases, then they should be pretty robust. And if you then, you know, illustrate the type of um, um, uh, patterns that you find with as many other examples as you can, um, at least illustratively, then again, you add another level of robustness. So I hope that the approach doesn't just link to the, to the theoretical insights, which um, you've said you know, work nicely for you. So that's great, but also stands up um, beyond the cases that I look at in the book, at least that's, that's the aim. No, they're, they're just interesting in and of themselves, too. I mean, just to just to read through the cases because it's it's uh, a lot of context that people may not have done deep studies in before. Now, I, I, I did find it interesting that when you're talking about revolutions, especially towards the end, you start to break down into two different strains of revolutionary thought. Um, one that's it's kind of like what Arendt does in, in on revolutions, where you look at one that's more of a political revolution kind of with a strain from 1776 and you go, okay, 1776, 1848, 1905. But then you also look at a separate strain that's more of a social revolution. That's more of the French revolution, Russian revolution direction. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't most revolutions have some elements of both of those, the, the political and the social to some extent. Yeah. Um, I mean, when any kind of, uh, you know, artifact like that, right? Any kind mm-hmm. of broader story always comes at a cost. 
So if you accept that history is singular, that you accept that it's messy, you accept it could have been otherwise, you accept there's no such thing as a total history that you can reconstruct, then any time you're working historically, you're, 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 you're simplifying, right? In some ways you're doing damage to the intricacies of, of what took place. So there's always a cost in telling these, these simplifying narratives and trying to make sense of these large bits of history. So that's not, the question isn't, you know, what do you miss? The question is, you know, are they useful? And I, I think they are, although I can see that there are wrinkles in there, not least the one that you spot. Uh, I mean, it may be that there's other ways of, of thinking about this, but why I think that's useful is, you, is, is actually from working back from the contemporary world. Mm-hmm. So I've, one of the issues that I've always had, you know, working on revolutions over the last 30 years or so is the kind of characters who not unreasonably say, but there's no revolutions anymore, right? There's no France, Russia, China, etc. Unless you have that idea of, of a whole new revolutionary society predominantly built, I think for most of those characters on how your economy is going to be fundamentally reshaped, whether it's socialist or, or, you know, socialist or, or plus some other uh, factors, then it's not real revolutions. And also, by the way, unless you're chucking people on the guillotine or throwing them in gulags or, you know, seeking to re-educate them violently, then somehow you're not doing a proper revolution. So I've always pushed back against that because I've thought the concept of revolution changes over time and place. So why couldn't it change in the contemporary world? We know there's this shift. We already talked about it in the 17th and 18th centuries from ideas of circulation to ideas of rupture. So why not? Uh, something similar in the contemporary world why not this notion of unarmed slightly more self-limiting slightly more contained revolution that's primarily about political rights representation inequality justice rather than what Arendt called the social question the fundamental issue of, of dispossession and inequality and therefore the requirement that your economy had to be restructured and everything else was effectively a corollary of that so I think there is something that's gone on and when I thought about that I thought about, hold on, but we've been here before. You know, this strand of revolution you can find, albeit with different degrees and in different um, uh, complexes across time and place. So you go back, there are elements of this in the rights movements in the 60s uh, and 70s and 68, 1968 revolutions probably be the sort of quintessential um, version of that. You go back a little bit further, and, and I think you're right to pick up those constitutional revolutions at the, at the beginning of the 20th century in Iran and elsewhere, not often studied, but primarily around constitutions, rights, representation, political justice, rather than the social question. Go back to 1848, the springtime of nations in Europe, often not looked at because they lost, you know, which gets you, you know, does that mean they don't matter? No. And then back actually to America. I mean, it may be odd for listeners to the podcast outside North America, but actually, you know, outside North America, outside the US, people don't tend to study the American Revolution, right? I mean, it tends to be something else. Maybe it's a revolt, maybe it's rebellion, it's about tax, but because it didn't do anything about slavery, because it didn't do anything about property rights, it's something else. It's something slightly more limited. And I think that's probably wrong. How is the Civil War viewed? Is that viewed as a revolution or is that truly viewed as a civil war? Because it did deal with the social question. That's true. But I, I don't, I, I mean, I haven't seen anyone reinterpret that as a revolution. It's a pretty good project for anyone willing to do it. But it's primarily seen as, I guess, a civil war, um, even though it had radical 
um, those kind of radical dimensions to it. To some extent, I guess it was a second run of 7076, right? Here are all of these issues we didn't get to. Here's, here's the second <laughs> birth. Kind of, yeah, I mean, they called it the second founding. So yeah, kind of. There you go. So um, I, th- I think there's something in that strain, right? I don't know whether it's better to call them political or social revolutions. I, I think your point is right that there's elements of both. I think that's not perfect. But there, it strikes me that there are these two kind of streams. There are these yeah. two kind of genealogies of revolution. And I think our problem between 1789 and 1989 was only concentrating on the big social capital R revolutions, which, as I've mentioned in the case of France, I'm not sure we're that, you know, perfect for that that, that form of revolution anyway. And then we missed or we we didn't spend enough time on this other strain of revolution was actually there. And is I think the preeminent form of revolution since 89. So, okay, so you talk about how revolutions change and we're talking about how the political type of revolution has kind of come forward, especially today. You describe a lot of those as negotiated revolutions. Can you help explain what you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, that was, um, that was actually my PhD back in the early 2000s. So, I mean, I, you mentioned it in the book again. (laughs) So I was, you know, I was, um, sort of very politically motivated as a teenager by the end of uh, communism in East Central Europe, partly because I just assumed growing up that communism was going to be there forever, right? And then these things happened and I couldn't understand what they were and they were clearly radical projects. But on the other hand, they were weird because they were unarmed and they had bits that looked more like civil Mm -hmm. disobedience, social movements and so on. So they sort of scrambled the revolutionary inheritance. So I wanted to study for a long time what they were and I eventually did it as a master's thesis, then part of a PhD. And I think they are revolutionary because you get that dramatic, quick change from below that's forceful. Uh, And they do seek a radical reshaping of particular social orders and to some extent international order. On the other hand, they're clearly different. Uh, And one, I, I concentrate on the negotiated bit, which is one element of how they're different. And the oddity there was that you sit around a table from your adversaries and you work out often very radical measures for how society is going to be reshaped. Mm-hmm. So it might be a new constitution. It might be a radical new uh, political ecology more generally. It might be about the free and open media, freedom of conscience. It sometimes involved you know, shock therapy and a radical liberalization of an economy. So it was pretty dramatic, but it wasn't done through firing squads and guillotines and tanks rolling through the capital city. It was done through these round tables. So I think things that are different, but exactly that. I mean, people call them different things, right? They call them velvet or they call them unarmed or they call, I call them negotiated to, to highlight that dimension. Um, And I do think elements of that are there today. Uh, I'm not sure how much negotiation there is, in a fair few of these of these uprisings we've seen. I mean, they were there in the, the color revolutions of the early 2000s and the couple of revolutions we've seen in Ukraine in 2003, four, then 2013 and 14. But I think there's something in the model that's still around, even if they're not perfect replicas of, of what we saw in 1989. Tunisia, do you consider that a negotiated revolution? Right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Serbia in 2000 with Milosevic. So, yeah. I mean, it's not that you don't have compulsive dimensions, but often what you get is, is elements of the old elite sitting round with the revolutionary yeah. where they decide that they're not going to fight to the finish, partly because they know that's costly, partly because they don't necessarily think they can win, partly because the old elite, frankly, wants a way of, of you know, maintaining some kind of grip or at least some of them 
um, want to stick around. And the, the, the newcomers are sometimes deeply committed to nonviolence or unarmed, or sometimes it's a strategic choice that that's the way they want to go. But either way, they often do negotiate at least elements of the new settlement. I don't think we've seen anything quite as radical as 1989, but I think elements of the model are still, still circulating. So your idea of negotiated revolutions, you feel that... I get the impression that there's a little bit of... Um, questioning in terms of their effectiveness within it because you 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 feel that in a lot of these revolutions there's a question of what do you do once you get there yeah is part of that because so many of these revolutions like ukraine's the perfect example both of those revolutions at least from my perspective it happened very quickly they didn't have the time to develop what Erica Shenoweth talks about as parallel institutions like were developed in South Africa, which I right. would assume had a negotiated revolution that was much more successful. Right. Um, is it the fact that they're moving so quickly or is it just the nature of the sense that they don't have a firm sense of ideology of what they're trying to accomplish? I think there's a couple of different dimensions. I think it is most fundamental. It's a shifting idea between means and ends. So the old style revolutions, whatever we're going to call them, let's stick with social revolutions or capital R revolutions. were all about ends, right? They were all about by any means necessary. So the point was to win because you had a project you wanted to institute from day one. Uh Here's what we're going to do. Here's how things are going to be fundamentally different. I think contemporary revolutions, again, whatever you want to call them, political, unarmed, negotiated, whatever, liberal, are much more about means. They're much more about process. And it's partly because they're actually critiquing that ends-based idea of revolution because they see that it had elements of it that were despotic. If it's by any means necessary, then, you know, we can do whatever we like and and the, the beautiful utopia will happen tomorrow after we get rid of that bad guy and that bad institution and that bad enemy and all the rest of it. And we know that they had tyrannical dimensions to them. So there's a reaction to that by saying, look, you're not going to get good ends without good processes. So there's a big concentration on, on deliberation, on horizontalism, on mass movements, on unarmed processes, and, and sometimes on negotiation. But you're right. Here's the problem. What do you do when you win? What's the project? And here I think it's partly about a lack of time, but actually partly about a kind of limited vision in the first place, right? In that revolutions are always what you might call anti-coalitions. So the movements themselves don't necessarily agree on what they're for, they agree on what they're against. We don't like the bad guy, we don't like the bad system, we don't like the bad foreign power that's telling us what to do. In the past, what happened is there was often a, a kind of revolutionary violence that happened after the immediate seizure of power where one part of that anti-coalition seized the movement. I mean, that happened in Russia with the Bolsheviks. It happened in Iran in 79 with the Islamists around Khomeini and so on. The difference these days is you have these vast anti-coalitions, huge people power movements that agree again on what they're against, but really, really, really don't agree on what they're for. They can be extraordinary, uh, wide ranging in terms of where they're coming from. So that's one aspect. I think the other aspect is that if you could say there's a kind of lowest common denominator about what they agree, it's often just a basic idea of liberalism, right? We want 
we want some elections. We want to be free, whatever that looks like. We don't want things to be corrupt. We, we want things to be more transparent. We want to join up. We want to join in. We want to kind of be normal. There's all of these ideas. And then you're actually losing that sense of ruptness of new ideology. And actually you're bringing back this idea of circular. You know, if you go back to 1989 and East Central Europe, a lot of what the Czechs or the Hungarians or Poles wanted to be was, was European. They wanted, to be, they wanted to be normal again. They wanted to catch up. They wanted to listen to Bruce Springsteen and the Rolling Stones and, you know, be able to do all of those things they were seeing happen in, in, in Western Europe, you know, because media means that these things are available and, and people know what's going on elsewhere these days. So I think there's a bunch of different dimensions. I think at its most abstract, but probably most important, it's a different way of thinking about means and ends. I think it's partly to do with the size of these movements and, and the fact they just don't agree. I think it's partly hardwired into those movements that they don't have a project, that they kind of, if you release the corruption, if you release, if you get rid of the problem, then things will kind of organically take shape. And I think there the real issue for these characters is, if you leave a vacuum, even when you win, then often old politics finds a way to reassert itself. So you do need a project, you do need a vision, partly ideological, partly institution, you've got to be ready to go. And I think part of the issue with these movements is they don't often have that dimension to them. You mentioned in the, uh, in the book, there's, there's a, a quote that I really, uh, really actually liked the way that you described it. You're right. Um, the other side of the ideal that without leaders, we all become leaders is that without leaders, there are no leaders. Yeah. Um, I, I found that really, uh, really interesting, especially because uh, earlier today, um, like over the weekend, Journal of Democracy came out with a couple articles in Belarus uh, early uh, for their issue. And the one that I've, I've read this morning was by Sirikowski called The Making of a Revolution. And he was emphasizing the fact that the success of the Belarusian um, resistance was the fact that they didn't really have a leader, that um, Lukashenko couldn't just come in and, and imprison one person and then cut off the revolution. You're not necessarily saying that the revolutions are less effective because they don't have a leader. You're saying that the transition becomes more difficult once they win because they don't have leadership. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, there's a kind of, there's a normative issue here and there's a strategic issue, right? The yes. normative issue is that you really believe that you must be horizontalist and deliberative and non-vertical because that notion of the Vanguard party or the, the hierarchical revolutionary movement is what you got, what got you into trouble first time around. Uh -huh. The second one is more strategic, right? Which is where I would place say the contemporary movement in Hong Kong where they look back at Hong Kong Occupy from five years or so ago. And when their leaders got arrested by the local authorities, the movement effectively disappeared. So this time the, the, the strategy was different. If we don't give them obvious leaders, then who are they going to arrest? And, and you have this idea of kind of at least relatively autonomous actions that take place without requiring a central committee and certainly without, without requiring a kind of figurehead. I think Belarus is interesting because there's a kind of combination, right? There are three leaders effectively, mm -hmm. um, but there's also this sense of momentum and there's also this sense of a lot of autonomy going to the grassroots itself to be able to organize and they're following a pretty standard playbook of of mass demonstrations forms of occupation great slogans good media representation internationalized where possible good social media presence and and all the rest of it look i don't think 
one of them necessarily works better than the other. I think they just come with their costs and benefits, right? You know, if you have single leaders or groups of leaders, you're probably going to be more clearly organized. And there's a kind of basic discipline that comes there. But the danger is you get rounded up or you lose and the movement disappears with you. The other side is you have this much more dispersed movement. But on the other hand, you lose that sense of cohesion. Now, that matters. My, my bigger point there is that that may matter a bit during the process, but honestly, it matters more with the outcome. What happens if you win? What happens if Lukashenko re, you know, resigns today um, for whatever reason, because he can take some millions with him and he thinks I better get out while the going is good and Putin tells him to do so more sure. or less at the back of a gun. What happens next? You know, in Ukraine, what we saw uh, is that, you know, you kind of, it disperses, the movement thinks it's done what it needed to do or large elements of it. And there may be a few people with a plan there, but sometimes they get co-opted. Sometimes they get um, side sidetracked, you know, sometimes they, they, they go back and do some other form of activism and sometimes all politics reasserts itself. So there's that's what I want people to concentrate on is what happens if you win? What's the project? What's the plan at some point? You need to have that elements of coherence and discipline, and it's got to transfer from means to ends. I mean, probably the best example of this, Justin, is, is I think in Rojava, in the Kurdish regions of Rojava, in the contemporary world, where you've got this deep line commitment to, I mean, some people call it a sort of, uh, I don't know, a kind of decentralized vanguardism or a kind of municipal socialism or bits of democratic confederalism, but whatever it is, it's a commitment to deliberation and horizontalism and mass participation. But they have these kind of temporary ways that people are elevated into positions of power. And, you know, they're militarized, right? They're fighting. And at some point, you know, you can't do, you can't do the military stuff through deliberation. You need command and control. So however temporarily you have forms of verticality. And I think the big issue in contemporary revolutionary practice as much as contemporary revolutionary theories work, trying to work through that balance between horizontalism and verticalism, deliberation and, and coherence and, and, and organization. Now, you describe revolutionary regimes as, as fairly stable. Um, we look at things like Cuba, we look at things like the USSR and how long they actually last in the book. But um, it seems like the negotiated revolutions um, you look at as much less stable, even though that they're revolutionary regimes. Am I reading that incorrectly? Um, I think it depends. I haven't thought mm -hmm. about that. I, I think, you know, some revolutionary regimes are not, depends what you mean by stable, right? You know, they're often deeply insecure. So they, they, one, one reason for, the, for this on, ongoing despotism is the sort of <laughs> paranoia of, of enemies at home and abroad. But they I, can stick I, around a long time. That's true. Sure. I, I'm not, I'm I'm not, not I'm, making the, the statement about that. Um, I guess yeah. I'm just reading into that, into your yeah. book, because of what you said about um, um, the way that negotiated revolutions get co-opted or kind of yeah, yeah. Uh, disappear. So that's, that's why I'm asking asking do yeah. you feel that it's less stable i i'm not making a, a normative statement is that something that you feel or do you feel that those are um able to overcome the difficulties of the transition and are just as stable i mean i think it's actually fairly remarkable that some of those old revolutionary regimes last as long as they do mm -hmm. uh and I think a lot of that is the legitimation of the revolution, at least how it's mobilized, right? And so Iran is an example, Cuba's another one, right? I mean, we now have a yes. president who wasn't even born at the time of the revolution. So, and yet the legitimacy of the revolution endures and is reproduced powerfully. 
Um, negotiator revolutions, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think uh, in many ways, when they deeply embed democracy and when they deeply embed their connections to forms of international organizations, so the European Union in the case of 1989, then they are pretty stable, right? So, I mean, it's true that Hungary and Poland at the moment are having a populist moment and that that's pretty severe. Um, but I'm not sure that the kind of general order of the society is at stake, however turbulent it is there. I'd actually relate it more to the kind of US contemporary UK, you know, version of populism, which which is destabilizing, but at the moment the system is holding, right? Checks and balances are working, you know, the mass media is still working, people can protest out on the streets, you know, democracy is doing what it's supposed to do. You'd have to erode democracy pretty severely in those states before I think you've got a form of instability that could be overturned through, through a mass movement from below. South Africa is an interesting example that you mentioned, right? In that there's a kind of mixed story there, in that it's remarkable and you have that construction of parallel institutions, as you were saying, you had a movement that existed over time that persisted, despite everything that was thrown at it. But one reason the settlement existed and held was precisely because it was limited. So politically, things are fairly dramatically different. But actually, it was about the ANC, the main opposition there, actually accepting huge amounts of its inheritance when it came to how the economy was being organized that really allowed it. To, to be maintained and actually exactly what allowed it to win is now what's exactly eroding its legitimacy you know what's actually happening here in terms of redistribution you promised us all sorts of things which aren't now happening we still don't have basic needs a few people have got rich others have haven't benefited at all so i'm not sure if i just it's a brilliant question and i don't have a very clear answer about kind of what's more stable than not i'd have to think about mm -hmm. that a lot more i think probably both have elements of, of forms of stability and, and destabilization hardwired into them. I suspect that that older model of revolutions is, is kind of more fundamentally unstable if you think about its convulsions that it goes through. Um, whereas, like I said, is if you have the negotiated unarmed model and that, that joins up with, with, with forms of international organizations and, and existing international orders, if it, if it deepens its, its form of uh, democracy, then it's probably reasonably stable. I just think the problem there is that people are often super disappointed um, with the limits that are put around the transformation. So I think there's probably different problems. And in, in case A, you're probably people going, wow, things are dramatically different. I'm not sure whether I like them, but they're really different. <laughs> At point B, they're going, actually, not enough has changed here. You know, let me keep protesting or just let me leave or let me feel, you know, pretty dissatisfied with, with the state of play. Now, in a negotiated revolution, obviously the opposition to some extent stays, um, has political rights, is able to compete. Um, is the presence of, of authoritarian successor parties sometimes a feature that keeps a negotiated revolution from really being revolutionary and, and launching um, additional change because the previous regime effectively stays in power by winning elections? Yeah, not just elections, right, but by staying in business and by staying, I don't know, a key um, a point sure. of sort of symbolic architecture of a society, whether it's you know their religious organisations or or their hold on on particular forms of media. That, so the point in general is the stickability of the old. So partly that might be authoritarian successor parties. I mean, the one that really struck home to me is when I was doing my first book. Uh, I went to interview um, 
of people in, in Czechoslovakia as it was then, later became the Czech Republic. And I remember walking into the Czech parliament and meeting a member of what was still called the Communist Party. And, you know, at that point they were polling 13%. Um, you know, he was eating chocolate cake, as he was telling me in Parliament, you know, how they should have shot everyone. I mean, so that shows you, I mean, it's both remarkable, right? I mean, how impressive that, that, um, that they managed to do this all without significant bloodshed. And that this guy could be sitting there some decade on or so. On the other hand, it tells you some of the problems you were saying, you know, if, if you don't have that moment of, of victory, of really clear total victory, you guys are done. A few of you are going to the guillotine, a few of you are being exiled, a few of you are being purged and all the rest of it, then you don't have that sort of sense of really big shakeup. You're going to have to still look across the way from the characters that you were fundamentally opposed by. And I think that's partly you're right about politics. It's partly about those people still are judges. Those people are still members of the police force. Those people are still teachers. You know, all of the, the old society has a way of reestablishing itself. Now, one thing I would say here is that's kind of always true of revolutions, right? You know, every revolutionary party, even when they win, they have their moment of total victory. We're in, you guys are out. You know, you still need tax inspectors. You still need civil servants. You still need teachers. So you have to make a deal with the old institutions. Uh, you still need a coercive apparatus, right? You don't disband the police. You don't often disband the military. Often, actually, you strengthen them. So... There's never been that scale of rupture and total rupture with state institutions that people think about. Um, but I think you have much more continuity in the old regime. In South Africa, they called it sunset clauses. You actually had ways of instituting and, and not purging the old. And that is hard, right? Then you find different ways of trying to deal with that, whether it's truth commissions or whether it's forms of lustration or whether it's just carrying on as it were but that you're certainly right that i think the, the principal weakness of these pacted or self-limiting or negotiated or unarmed revolutions is they don't have that kind of that way of moving very clearly from old to new there's far more continuity across the whole sort of gamut of political institutions people you know, running the economy the people who are in charge of all sorts of pillars of the old so it's that sort of um Although all revolutions have that dimension of continuity and change, here the, the form of continuity is is, is extreme and, and right in front of people. Now, George, like a lot of people that are paying attention to the news are very focused on Belarus. Mm. Um, you know, that's that's very much something that um, if you're a news junkie that you're aware of. As a as somebody who's a scholar of revolutions, though, just as we're kind of wrapping up. Can you, can you name a revolution that's captured your imagination that is relatively unknown? Wow. Good question. <laughs> I mean, I will refer you mainly to um, a fantastic scholar called Eric Selvin, who's uh -huh. got a fantastic book on, on revolutionary stories where he has a whole category of what he calls lost and forgotten revolutions, right? Mo movements. And, you know, I remember going back to the beginning of our conversation, one of the reasons I wanted to look at revolutionaries who lost movements that didn't win was actually eric's work on this which is super important you know what about all of these characters that we've kind of lost there's a kind of condescension of history right where we look back at the winners and we forget all of those other movements i mean the classic story i would have said you know three four years ago would have been haiti mm -hmm. and you have a remarkable revolution at the end of the 18th century beginning of the 19th century that 
you know, is just as important, maybe more so than France and America and, and what else took place in Latin America over the decade or two afterwards, but had effectively been written out of the story of revolutions, particularly when you think about Haiti, Haiti in relation to, you know, France and America, this border sort of transnational wave of revolutions that was taking place. Could you really have equality and fraternity in, and without racial equality, you know, could you still be slave owning and, and have that was such a key question. Haiti really put that on the map. That's been much more studied the last three or four years. So maybe that's slightly cheating. I think those constitutional revolutions that we mentioned in passing are still not studied, you know, Iran, uh, uh, Russia, you know, China, Morocco, the Mexico, that the Portugal, that, that wave of revolutions that were deeply connected at the beginning of the 20th century. Again, they lost, which is uh -huh. one reason don't study them so much, but super important in terms of uh, what they were trying to do in terms of tracing the strands of that, that political genealogy of revolutions that I've talked about. Then you can have ones that I think are difficult to categorize. You could have Spain, the civil war, you know, again, mm -hmm. what, you know, that sort of counterfactual there, they nearly won, you know, what would have looked different if, if they had won. Rojiver in the contemporary world is, I think, the, the, the version of that. You know, what, what, what are these remarkable kind of experiments in a very hostile geopolitical climate? So, you know, what happens if they stick around for a while? What does that tell us? I think the one, sorry, I'm cheating here and giving you loads. <laughs> it's the great. The one that I don't think is forgotten, but I think is massively misunderstood, is Iran in 1979. That we think about as this kind of reactionary um, form of theological extremism. But people underestimate the kind of remarkable amalgam of forces that put that together. The, the notion of an Islamic Republic, people look at the Islamic, they forget the Republic bit. That you know, a large amount of the Iranian constitution was borrowed from the French Fifth Republic. Khomeini himself had spent time in, in France in exile. Some of the leading ideologues of the revolution like Ali Shariati had studied in France. And there was this really remarkable combination of forces that were part Republican and part theological. And although revolutions are often unusual amalgams, I think that was probably the most unusual. And a lot of the dissonance that you get in contemporary Iran is because those two forces actually compete. You know, one is a kind of spiritual sovereignty that derives from God. And the other one is a much more, you know, grounded sovereignty that appears from, from elections and from rights and forms of representation and so on. And, and the competition between those two forces and the curiosity of the amalgam, I think, is fascinating. As well as the fact that Iran really was the kind of ground zero of these unarmed protests, you know, that you had these extraordinary mass protests over 16 months, almost entirely nonviolent against a guy who was armed to the teeth, backed by the world's most powerful actor, the United States, in a region that was hostile to that type of movement, and they won. So I think for all of those reasons, I think Iran is probably the least understood and the most interesting, uh, at least for me, over the last 30, 40 years. Does that give you enough there? You've got a few. Yeah, it's awesome. That's good. <laughs> it, Iran is one of those parts of the world that the more I read about it, the less I understand. Yeah. Join it's, the club. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I feel like I feel like I, I I come across articles and 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 I go, okay, this th this looks insightful, and then I go, okay, now I'm even more, you know, uh, even more lost. But it's uh, it's a fascinating part of the world. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I, I think this has been really insightful and I think helps us kind of make that transition from just talking about civil resistance to talking about revolutions as a whole. So 
Um, this was a, a great conversation. Thanks for joining me today, George. Thanks, Justin. I really enjoyed it. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank George Lawson for a copy of his book, Anatomies of Revolution. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.